This is Meet the Composer. From WQXR's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer, the show that mines the brains of 21st century thinkers. I'm your host, Nadia Sirota. The first time I ever heard of composer John Luther Adams, I was at a percussion department recital, I think, in Paul Hall, which is one of the smaller concert halls at Juilliard. All of a sudden, I was taken over by what actually felt more like a physical sensation than sound, than music. So there were these four bass drums, each one of which was the size of like an eight-year-old, and they were placed in each corner of the small concert hall. They started kind of rumbling one at a time from each direction, and my first thought was that something very physical was happening, that I was experiencing an earthquake. What affected me most about this piece at the end of the day was that it wasn't just a trick. It wasn't just a cool sound that made me think about natural phenomena or anything. It was this very meticulously composed piece that was satisfying to listen to and had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I remember feeling so affected by this piece from moment to moment. This was music that was coming from a composer I had never heard of before. Who was John Luther Adams? I've always felt that I could have my cake and eat it too. That music can be ravishingly beautiful or profoundly physical and still be intellectually airtight, rigorously conceived and executed. That's always seemed like a false dichotomy to me. Why couldn't music be smart and sound good? Today, I sit down with 2014 Pulitzer Prize winner John Luther Adams, whose work has been described as haunted by silence. But it hasn't always been that way. John got kicked out of several high schools and was, in his own words, a know-it-all rebellious kid who started a rock band called Sloth. Nowadays, he's living and working as close as he can get to the edge of society in a cabin in Alaska. So how did he get there? How did a kid's obsession with noise morph into an obsession with wind and silence? Imagine 14-year-old John in a cover band in New Jersey, opening for acts like Buffalo Springfield and playing predominantly... The Three Bs. Who are the, the Three Bs? The Beatles. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. The Beach Boys. And the birds. Okay. So we started out as cover bands, and I got bored with that, and so did my buddies. And uh, over time, we started trying our hand at, at songwriting, and I was a big fan of Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa the teetotaling 1960s and 70s musician and polymath with wildly eccentric tastes spanning from rock to jazz to European modernism. He gets me off as good as some contemporary classical pieces. And on the back of Frank's early LPs, there would always be this intriguing little quote, the present-day composer refuses to die, Edgar Varese. And my little rock and roll buddies and I would read that and scratch our heads and wonder, oh, who is this Farisi guy? Right. <laughs> and uh, one day my friend uh, Dick Einhorn was rummaging through the record bins in a shop in the West Village and came across this album with this mad scientist on the cover with a great shock of electrostatic graying hair and these bushy eyebrows and this stern countenance and the title was The Music of Edgar Perez Volume 2. So he brought it home and we quickly wore out the grooves. It just all sounds like a bunch of noise to me. We hear this this desert, this ocean, this these forbidding mountains of, of sound and and I remember thinking, I'll never be able to know where I am in this. I, I, I don't know what to hang on to. So your response to 
what is this music was just to immerse yourself Give in Give me it. more. Yeah. Which has always been my response to any new experience. And I often uh, encourage young musicians, uh, especially young composers, you know, listen to everything you can get your ears on, especially the stuff you think you don't like. I started to realize, oh, okay, there's that repeated note with on the oboe, and okay, that's a landmark, I can grab onto that. Oh, and here's this place where there's sort of a, a, a tattoo figure with the snare drums, and then these unison stabs in the rest of the percussion. Uh, gradually, we began to learn how to listen to the Forbidding Deserts of Varennes. Did that affect the music you guys were making? Oh, sure. It meant that the process that was already underway was just accelerated. We we rapidly abandoned the the one four five chords and the, the backbeat and the four bar phrases, and started discovering Cage and Feldman and Ancaro and Paulina Oliveros and Ruth Crawford and you know, on and on. Uh, so thank you, Frank Zappa. What you're hearing right now is an electronic piece by Frank Zappa called Love Story. Totally different vibe from the track we heard before. John was one of many people who used Zappa as a kind of gateway drug to the wild frontiers of modern classical music. So you were listening to Verez and you found all this interesting music in the music store. Yeah, and, uh, and I started listening to these European composers. But I think early on I had this inclination toward these quirky, idiosyncratic Americans who were not really part of an identifiable sound or long historical tradition, but who shared a certain inquisitive spirit and a certain desire to reinvent, rediscover music for themselves from the ground up. What was your first encounter with John Cage's music? Mm. Harpsichord, you know, however you pronounce it. The music circus for harpsichords and computer-generated sounds. And I remember getting the LP from Nunsuch of that piece. And inside of it was several pages of computer printout. You know, this was, when was this? 1970, somewhere along in there. So just... Seeing computer paper and dots like that on the page was was exciting, but it was the listener's score. It was your instructions for how you could play the volume, the stereo left and right, the, the bass, the treble, the different components of your stereo set to be actively part of shaping the experience of, of listening to the recording. So here's a young Adams who's learned his craft in a kind of DIY way who gets an invitation from Columbia University, the prestigious, Ivy League, somewhat traditional choice. Enter John's friend, Dennis Dennis Keeley, who was also a rock and roller. Who basically grabs John by the scruff of the neck and directs him towards the first major detour. Dennis said, you're not going to Columbia. And I said, oh, no. He said, no, you're going to this new place in California. And I never listened to, to Dennis. I never took his advice. You know, I was always knew that I knew more than he did, but for some reason I realized he was right about this, and uh, so I found myself uh, one fine afternoon in oh, I guess it was 1971, the fall of 1971, walking into the studio of James Tenney. James Tenney, electronic music pioneer, as yet unproven pedagogue, first year on the job, and a bit of a rebel. Didn't know who he was, didn't know his music, and I started discovering. Oh my God. What an amazing composer. Mm -hmm. 
how lucky was I? Here I was, knowing nothing, thinking I knew everything, walking into this studio of James Tenney at CalArts, and uh, I must have launched into some tirade. And Jim sat very patiently and listened to this mouthy kid. And then I took a breath. He looked at me and, and asked in this wonderfully innocent way, so um, why are you here? And so it began. Jim Tenney had my number from the get-go. He realized that nobody was going to teach me anything, that I had to feel that that I was, yes, re reinventing the wheel, rediscovering fire, like primitive man. But he had this uncanny knack for asking just the right, gently pointed question at just the right moment. Again, I, I can't imagine what would have become of me had I not had that supreme good fortune. <laughs> He played in the early ensembles of Steve Reich and Philip Glass. He, he worked with Cage. He knew everyone and had been all over the musical map in terms of his own curiosity as a composer. His music was amazing, mind-blowing. <laughs> Jim was kind of reinventing himself right at that moment. Jim wasn't making electronic music, and I adopted the same posture and was interested in hearing new things with acoustic sounds. I had just left CalArts, hadn't yet gone to Alaska, and I would take long walks in the early morning and again at dusk, and I became captivated by this singer that I kept hearing deep in the woods, and I could never find the bird, but I couldn't get enough of the song. I started taking notes. The birds became my teachers after James Tenney. And the result was a series of pieces that I composed between 1974 and 79 called simply Songbird Songs. was the translation process between hearing this bird song that you just couldn't get enough of and constructing a narrative? In working with the bird songs, I just try to take dictation. I try to listen carefully to the birds, where they are as they're singing, and write down what I hear. I'm not interested in accuracy, because if I were, I'd just make a recording and play the recording. I'm interested in what gets lost in translation, because after all, this is music, this is perhaps a language that we will never understand. Also, there weren't very many field recordings available in those days, but there were some, and I decided, no, I'm not going to use them. I really wanted to hear them and to learn them for myself. Now, that's actually very different from the way I work much of the time. Rather than working with very specific details of the music and then building the piece up, I usually sculpt away the whole field of sound, and I work with one big shape or image or color or atmosphere that, that I have in mind that I can't quite hear, but I want to hear. And try to hear that, sense that, write that down as clearly as I can, and then all the moment-to-moment -moment details of the music follow.
Songbird Songs was a pretty seminal piece for John and proved itself as a kind of antecedent to a whole bunch of nature-inspired work. After the break, we'll hear how the landscape and severity of Alaska changed John's music forever. Stay tuned. Q2 Music's first podcast, Meet the Composer, is finally here. Subscribers to the MTC podcast get not only immersive, plush interviews with some of the most innovative, brilliant, and weird composers out there, they get exclusive recordings of music performed by some of today's hottest ensembles. On July 8th, podcast subscribers can download John Luther Adams' string quartet, The Wind in High Places, performed live in the Q2 Music studio by the Jack Quartet. It's all available at q2music.org and on iTunes. Hideous. Mesmerizing. Deep. Spacious. It's reflective. It's slow-moving. Beautiful. Contemplative. It's, it's noisy. It's weightless. It's brash. Relentless. It's loud. It's clear. It's luminous. It's hypnotizing. So imagine the first time I heard John Luther Adams' music. I'm sitting in this classroom at college. I'm on the podium and I'm surrounded by music that appears to emanate from a natural world. The room falling away, the crowd around me disappearing, and a sense of being transported. My pulse is flowing. It suggests an absolute vastness. Rhythmic music happening at the same time as the person who's 50 feet away from me is playing interesting, complicated, a 72nd of a measure different from me. Absolutely unstoppable forces at work. I'm conductor Joanne Folletta. I'm Jim Altieri, composer and programmer. This is Alex Ross, music critic of The New Yorker. I'm Stephen Schick. I'm a percussionist and a conductor. I'm Nadia Sirota. From WQXR in New York, this is Q2 Music's Meet the Composer. What you're hearing right now is a piece called Songbird Songs by today's featured composer, John Luther Adams. Songbird Songs was a kind of important early work for John because it represented the first time that natural phenomena featured heavily in the narrative of one of his pieces. Nature is truly a driving force in John's creative process, and soon after college, he was yearning for a stronger connection to the land. I hated Los Angeles. The whole time I was there, I felt lost, and not in a good way. It was such an interesting contrast because it was one of the most explosive periods of my life in terms of of discovery. But at the same time, uh, there was this kind of inner gnawing. I just felt lost in the freeways and all that sprawl, that city that seemed to just go on forever. It made me long for home, which I never felt that I had because we moved all the time and I'd grown up here and there in equally homogenous suburban surroundings. So there was this deep, inarticulate hunger to find a place to which I might belong. The place where Adams belonged, it turns out, was off the grid, in wild, open spaces. I went north in the summer of 1975, so I was 22 that summer, and from the moment I arrived, I knew I'd found home. When you showed up in Alaska, what did you see, what did you hear that made you feel like you knew you were home? Where to begin? It all really starts in the summer of 1975 when... I first canoed across Admiralty Island, went into Glacier Bay, hiked on the tundra of Denali, eventually made my way to the Brooks Range, to the Arctic. You know, there was and still is in those places a sense of openness and space and possibility 
as well as danger. Uh, these are big places in which we feel very, very small, and we realize that we're insignificant and the place doesn't care if we are there or not, and uh, the weather or the bear or the river can rise up at any moment and snuff me out. And, you know, I find a certain reassurance, a certain profound comfort in that. I was trying to reconnect with the larger, older world that, that we still inhabit, but that we, that we forget. And Alaska allowed me to feel like I was the only person in that place. So in the summer of 1977, I visited the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and we flew over the crest of the Brooks Range and out onto the coastal plain, the Arctic coastal plain, and there in the distance was the ice and, and of course, the sun, even, even in midsummer, the sun doesn't get very high on the horizon, so there's this incredible, deep, warm, saturated uh, light and the, the colors and the shadows and everything just stands out and then you get out on the tundra and you lose all sense of scale. I remember one evening with a buddy, we were just so excited to be alive and out in that Arctic evening light. And we saw this white rock out across the tundra and it was this odd looking thing. And I said, well, why don't we walk over there? Why don't we hike to that rock? And we hiked and we hiked. And, of course, the tundra is not easy to walk on. But we kept walking, we kept walking, and, you know, the, the rock didn't get any closer. <laughs> so we kept walking. And then suddenly we stopped because the rock flew away. Wow. The rock was a snowy owl sitting on the tundra. And, you know, it could have been... a. 12-foot outcropping of white stone. You just, you, you lose yourself in that place, in that light and in that endless space. And that's what I want in music. That's so beautiful. This idea of scale, that you don't know whether you're looking at something very small or very big. There's a sort of a sameness about the landscape that completely wipes context away. And John's music can do the same thing. So on the surface of a piece like the one we're listening to, The Farthest Place, you feel this sort of vastness, this expanse. There's an incredible sense of breadth to this music. But from moment to moment, the specific details of it are changing pretty rapidly. You get the idea that if you were to just cut away an instant of his music, you'd have a sense of the landscape but it would be unbelievably different from a slice you could take three minutes later. This piece gets its title from the translation of an Inuit town in Alaska that is so remote, it's simply referred to as the farthest place. Let's take a couple minutes and just listen.
Farthest Place, and any other piece featured on today's show on our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. The idea that music has topography and can create space is also a big theme in John's work. Conductor Joanne Folletta calls it a natural geographical cathedral in sound. It's as if you're entering a doorway to a completely different oral experience. That experience is far removed from the chaotic busyness of our lives. You have to get used to that. You have to allow yourself to slow down, to just experience the sound around you, to rest in it, to let the music hold you and surround you. And the result is that you really emerge at the other end of this beautiful tunnel. You're sitting on a bench in a small white room. There are five glass panels in front of you. Depending on the time of day, the day of the week, the week of the year, the glass panels change color. Burning oranges, muted greens, deep reds. This is the place where you go to listen. Here's music critic Alex Ross. It's an experience that can't be captured, it can't be recorded. You have to be there. Uh, Subtle patterns of light on the walls. You sit on the bench and become mesmerized by these extraordinary sounds which are always changing and are never the same. Yep, I can hear you. Imagine you're sitting at home and the phone rings. Can you hear me? You pick up the phone, and a voice says, Hi, this is John Luther Adams. And he says, So, hey, I'm beginning to write a grant for this piece. Not sure what it is yet, but it's going to take all of these geophysical data streams, and it's going to make sound and light with them. And I said, Great, I'm your man. That's Jim Altieri, who happens to be an Oberlin grad with a double degree in geology and electronic music. Jim moved to Alaska and became the programmer for this piece, The Place Where You Go to Listen, which is a permanent installation in the University of Alaska Fairbanks Museum of the North. It's a mouthful. It takes these geophysical data streams, such as where is the sun, what's the weather like, what's going on seismically in the region, what's going on geomagnetically in the region, where's the moon located, all these sorts of streams. And it takes these different streams and creates a field of sound around you. If there are small earthquake tremors somewhere, you'll feel that in the base. There are these uh, wonderful shimmering bell-like sounds uh, that come in in the highest registers. No familiar sounds of nature, no recognizable sounds of musical instruments. You're in a place you've never been before, but I wanted you at the same time to feel to hear with your ears, to sense with your eyes, and to feel through your body that this hermetically sealed man-made world is vibrating in harmony with something much larger. This is one of John's pieces that I hesitated to play because the entire point is to be there, in that space. But the place where you go to listen is significant because it's singular, an even deeper exploration of music as landscape, This is music as physical space, as tangible and real as a painting. It's an extraordinary experience. It is generally a a peaceful experience. There is uh, this surface beauty of the sounds as as they are uh, filtered through the mechanism that he's set up. But you think about the earth itself and and the forces at work and the potential violence. Uh, And so beneath that beautiful, reassuring surface, as so often in his music, there is a sense of vastness and power and a certain danger. And when you walk out of the room, you won't (laughs) feel things and, and hear things in quite the same way. John Schaefer has said, I have this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde musical personality that some of my work is very, um, is very spacious and kind of haunted by the idea of silence, a certain kind of pervasive atmosphere, a color, a stillness, a field of, of sound. Uh, then there's the other side, which can be almost violent. And, um, you know, I seem to not care much for middles. I seem to be drawn to extremes in my work and in, in life. 
This is percussionist Steve Schick, whom we heard talk about time and concentration at the top of the show, playing Thunder from John's piece, The Mathematics of Resonant Bodies. This music is definitely more along the violent Mr. Hyde side of John Luther Adams' persona. For whatever reason, maybe because of his experience in rock bands as a kid, or maybe because he was so blown away by Edgar Varez, who was an excellent manipulator of percussive sounds, John Luther Adams writes wonderful percussion music. Let's check out a couple minutes of this piece right now. of Resonant Bodies or any of the pieces featured on today's show, you can go to our website, q2music.org. When we come back, we'll talk about John's process and how he wrote his first string quartet at age 59. Stay tuned. You don't have to be near a computer to listen to Q2 Music. The WQXR app makes it mobile. Listen to the best in new music wherever you want, whenever you want. Download the WQXR app for free to stream Q2 Music on your phone or tablet. From WQXR's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer, the show that mines the brains of 21st century thinkers. I'm your host, Nadia Sirota. When I think about John Luther Adams' music, like this piece, Dark Waves for Orchestra, I spend a lot of time sort of reevaluating my senses. He reshapes time and reorganizes nature. And in a way, the artists he most closely resembles, at least in my brain, are visual. James Terrell and Mark Rothko. Maybe that's why his installation pieces work so well. His music somehow embraces the timelessness of the way we experience light, or wind, or weather systems. You've worked in several installation kind of ideas, and there mm. are some pieces of yours that I think kind of hover between installation and performance piece. Yeah. What brought you to think about working in that kind of more dimensional medium, I, I should say? My insatiable hunger for space. Radio studios are great, concert halls are great, but they're kind of confining. And I always have been drawn to bigger and more open spaces. And it's finally started to take physical form in my work. So outdoor pieces, but also indoor pieces that are intended to be 
experienced in the larger indoor spaces. Your music often evokes multiple sort of environmental circumstances kind of clashing in space. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as if there's like a cold front and, you know, some other type of... Yeah, it's weather. It's weather. Yeah. In fact, there's an interesting essay that a German scholar, Bernd Zuckenrath, just wrote called uh, The Weather of Music. And it actually talks about, it uses weather as a metaphor in Ives and then in Cage and then in my music and traces this sort of, this, this evolution in a very, in a very poetic and, and kind of provocative way. Yeah, I do think of the sounds of musical forms and events as forces, as natural elements in some way. And it may sound ridiculously grandiose or laughably naive, but I've always imagined that I might be able to work in a space that's just outside of culture. Of course, it's patently absurd. There's no way that we work outside of of culture. And these days, so many cultures. And yet, as my friend Barry Lopez, the writer, says, landscape is the culture that contains all human cultures. And uh, I believe that everything we do, everything we think, everything we think we create, everything we are derives from the world that we inhabit. Our language, our music, our, our minds, Everything is is shaped by this incredibly complex and wondrous world that we inhabit. So ultimately this nature-culture dichotomy in a way doesn't exist. But it's been a useful conceit for me to feel that I'm after something that that is not it's it's not part of a musical tradition. It's not specifically cultural. It's somehow more elemental. Where does music come from? How does a composer take an assignment like write an 11-minute piece for string quartet and translate those instructions into a concept, into notes, into a score? For composer John Luther Adams, it seems almost like the transformation happens in his sleep. I try to resist composing for as long as I can. I really want to get at something essential before I start manipulating notes, pushing things around. I try to hold things in my mind's ear as long as I can. It's, a, it's maybe an inefficient way to work, but it has worked for me. I find that if I'm trying to remember, trying to hear something that I can't quite name, it focuses my attention in a certain way, and then I finally start composing when I can't not compose, when I have to write it down. I'm thinking about like the way that we are discovering how memory and the brain works, mm-hmm. and every time you remember something, you're actually recreating a story. Yes. So I, I really like that you have an idea and you are continually remembering it. So basically you're making yes. a lot of mental Xeroxes of it yes. over and over again until it becomes something which is so steeped in your brain stuff that yes. it is it is a piece. It exactly. Is. So night after night when I lie down to go to sleep, I'm imagining this group of instruments in this particular space and what they might sound like and how they might move through the space physically and through the musical space of of the piece. And it's repetitive. I'm doing it every night. At a certain point, I lose it and I drift off to sleep. But somehow that repetition, I think, it refines, it, 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 it focuses, it... It sort of reminds me of the process of, like, creating a pearl or something, where mm-hmm. you're, you're going over this mm-hmm. same... You're, you're worrying it, and you're sort yeah. of, yeah, eroding, <laughs> eroding it away, which is sometimes the way I, I, I tend to compose. Mm-hmm. You said something like, I've made all the wrong career decisions in my life, or something like that. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, you know, I didn't go to Columbia. I didn't study with the right people. I didn't enter the right competitions. I dropped out of graduate school. I went to Alaska. 
I got as far away from all of that as I possibly could. I'm not sure I knew really what I was doing, but in retrospect, I see that every time I came to a crossroads and had a choice to make, I made the wrong choice, <laughs> which turned out, of course, to be the right choice. That's, that's kind of been my guiding principle. And of course, it's, it's turned out to be absolutely right. You know, if you want to have a, if you want to have a brilliant career, well, go into business. Right. Why, why would you do this? Did you feel like you were making gutsy or risky decisions when you were making them? No. No, I didn't feel brave at all. In fact, I'm kind of a wimp. And in a way, you know, I think I was running away. I thought I was running away from my family, from the suburbs, from the cities, from competitive careerism, from academia, from all the right things. I was actually running away. But it just turns out that I was running to something. I just didn't know what it was until many years later. Winds in High Places? Is that the name of the string? The Wind in High Places. The Wind in High Places. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of that piece. It's my first string quartet. Congratulations. Yeah, I wrote a string quartet (laughs) at age 59. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that happens with me. Uh, Again, it's this sort of primitive man discovers fire. I'm I'm slow. It takes me a while. I have to feel that whatever I'm working on is, is mine. So solo piano pieces, string quartets let alone operas or symphonies. These are, these are not forms that, that feel like they're mine. Mm-hmm. But a few years ago, my, my best friend Gordon Wright, the conductor and composer and my camping buddy, my next-door neighbor, you know, my guy, Gordon died suddenly. Mm. And I was devastated. In response, one of the things that came out was a set of three little pieces, little miniatures for solo violin called Three High Places, and they're just little vignettes, little sketches of times and places that Gordon and I shared together camping Mm. in Alaska. So I wrote this piece, and in the course of 20 minutes or so, the strings never touch the fingerboard. The whole piece is open strings and, and natural harmonics. And it sounded like, you know, my string quartet. Mm. We are really lucky to have access to a live performance by the Jack Quartet of John Luther Adams' piece, The Wind in High Places, which has yet to be recorded commercially. So this is pretty much the only place you can hear The Wind in High Places, aside from our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Let's sit back and take some of it in.
be brave. Savor the new and the unfamiliar and realize that, oh, maybe it's a little bit like food. The first time I tasted Laphroaig, a single malt Scotch whiskey, I said, um, oh, that tastes like an old rope dipped in turpentine. Give me some more. New experiences are sometimes strange and sometimes even off-putting, but to realize that, in fact, that's a good thing, and it, it, it leads to new experiences and new ways of being in the world. So just I just say relax and, and, and don't worry about uh, making sense uh, in any way, uh, because in many cases, the old ways of listening just don't apply. But if you can just let go and sink into the music, uh, eventually y- y- your, your ears will tell you how to listen. The music will tell you how to hear it. Mm. That's lovely. Huh? <laughs> You can hear more of this live recording by the Jack Quartet of The Wind in High Places on our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer, where you also will find a link to John's most recent CD, Inuxuit, which is an outdoor piece for a boatload of percussionists, including Steve Schick, who you heard on today's show. Since we originally recorded this interview, John Luther Adams actually won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for an amazing orchestral piece called Become Ocean. We wish we had time on this show to play the piece for you because it's awesome, but if you're interested... You can find a link to it on our website. The credits for today's show are going to be read by Kickstarter supporter Limor Tomer. You think I have a future in radio? I know I have a past in radio. Meet the Composer is produced by Nadia Sirota, Alexander Overton, and Thea Challoner. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Special thanks to Hannes Brown, Joanne Folletta, Alex Ross, Stephen Schick, Jim Altieri, and Lauren Stevenson. Thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which was originally used for the organization founded by composer John Duffy. Also special thanks to our Kickstarter supporters, including P. Kellogg-Waddle, Bill Coleman, Catherine L. Williams, Julia Hegler, Andrew O'Kelly, and Matt Albert. This has been a presentation of Q2 Music, part of Classical 105.9 WQXR. Q2 Music is a listener-supported online station devoted to music of living composers. Q2 is home for immersive festivals, live webcasts, and on-demand concerts from today's leading music performers. Find us at Q2 on Facebook, Q2 Music on Twitter, and online at q2music.org.